welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and with me, as always, is Nick Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hey, Ryan. And with us, as never, is uh, Christopher Flowers. Hey, Chris. Hi, Ryan. And Chris is here today to help us uh, with episode 27 of The Mean, which is entitled Energy. So, Chris, why did I ask you to drive all the way from Pasadena to Los Angeles to talk to us about energy? Why Why are you someone that, uh, you know, I want you to get into my brain here. Why would I ask you to come on the podcast to talk about energy? Well, I am a graduate student at Caltech researching solar energy and specifically the the possibility and pathways to achieve unprecedented efficiency in sunlight to electricity conversion uh, using photovoltaics. So my expertise is in this energy space, mm-hmm. particularly in renewable energy and uh, nerd. Yep. Yeah. So Chris I tinkers all day with computer algorithms that model basically how to split the sun into various spectrums of colored light in order to enhance the efficiency of solar energy cells, basically. You got it. You got it. That's right. You're working with different substrates and such. Yeah, yeah. Using different semiconductors, Mm -hmm. as it were. Uh, Trying to maximize the efficiency of the absorption of energy through solar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absorb more of the sunlight and convert less of it into heat through useless absorption. Nick, what are you doing with your life? Just out of curiosity. Um, I'm also working on that. So <laughs> that's it, that's really weird. That's yeah. strange. You're just it's everything you said verbatim. It's actually just, but just by yourself. Stunning. Your yeah. It's, I'm more of like a grassroots <laughs> startup. I have a lot of unpaid interns, but yeah, we're making headway. <laughs> so Chris, could you, could you give us uh, non Caltech students a little bit of a background as to how we got where we are? Like, what's the state of things with with what we call alternative or green energies, solar, wind? I know your expertise is more particularly in solar, but um, you know, for the vast majority of post industrial revolution uh, Western societies, developed societies, um, industrialized and post industrial societies. We have been relying upon things like steam power and then coal, fossil fuels, um, things that came from dead things a long time ago becoming something else over time, um, tar and oil and natural gas and shale and all these things. So what's – first of all, why does your job exist? Like what's the reason why we would want you to be doing what you're doing? And secondly, or I guess in a related sense, like how did we even get here? Yeah, so I, I think there are a lot of a lot of ways to answer that question. So I'll t- try to slice it a few, and uh, you can correct course if I go too far astray. Um, from a pretty basic level, first, climate change is something that's on on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are pretty nice statistical analyses that um, will show strong correlation. Um, and and border on showing causation of extreme weather events linked to changes to climate and mm-hmm. um, the and we say climate change now, but a few years ago we we said global warming. Right. Is that is right. there a reason we started saying climate change instead it's, of global warming? It's not just warming. Warming uh, an overall warming trend is a big part of it, but mm-hmm. the earth the earth itself cycles, um, and mm-hmm. there there are more things. Uh, in addition to the warming that take place. So okay. extreme cold events, as well as extreme heat events, heat waves, and and other things can be really nicely statistically correlated with um, an- anthropogenic uh, mm-hmm. additions into mm-hmm. our atmosphere. So humans are doing so, stuff. Right. There's also these kind of maybe less than precedented weather patterns that are going on. Um, and we're starting to, as a society, go... These two things are correlated. Right. Human activities releasing certain gases into our atmosphere. Yeah, the big the big um, concern in the seventies was global cooling, but then ozone ozone eradication, and then it became global warming, and now it's um, extreme weather or climate change. So right. the, this is sort of we've been suspecting for a long time that like you come, you know, in the seventies, you walk outside your door in LA and you can't see your hand in front of your face. Yep, like maybe yep. that's bad. Yeah. And now in Beijing and Shanghai and other places, 
so weather's a part of this and mm-hmm. like what we're noticing that our industrial activities have been doing to the water, to the air, um, whether it's, you know, through scientific discovery or just kind of observation. Yeah. Maybe there shouldn't be like a continent of plastic in the ocean. Yeah. yeah. Things of that nature. Yeah. So there's an environmental impulse, but, but what about, well, is that the only impulse? Is that, is the environmental kind of angle the reason why your job exists? Definitely not. Um, so I think there there are more localized effects, like you you alluded to. Uh, smog was really bad in LA in the 70s and 80s, and thanks in large part to some research out of Caltech that linked asthma rates with mm-hmm. particle count and mm-hmm. and showed much higher. Uh, yeah, so we don't want sick kids frequencies for people living within certain proximity of freeways in Los Angeles mm-hmm. uh, that instigated. A, mm-hmm. a lot of work in the catalytic converter revolution mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. played a big role in cleaning up LA. That's why every year we have to go like get our cars checked. Yeah. And, yeah, smog. Yeah. And it kind of says your car's too dirty or it's not. That all came out of this research that basically said kids are getting sick because there's stuff in our air that shouldn't be in our air. Right. Right. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, people talk about the, the concept of peak oil, you know, we'll, okay. we'll produce at some point, the most oil we'll ever be able mm-hmm. to produce. And then that will decline and we'll need some resource mm-hmm. after that. So I'm that not way, sure. it's kind of a planning for the future. Like eventually we won't have any more oil. So I actually am not sure that I buy into that argument. Okay. Um, oil will certainly get harder and harder to achieve. But mm-hmm. if you think about it from a pretty basic physics perspective, Thinking about the the temperature on the Earth during its its formative period, it existed in a state where there would basically be no oxygen, and mm-hmm. we can we can extrapolate from that that through photosynthetic processes, through plants growing and decomposing, um, and ultimately forming the hydrocarbons that are uh, you know make up oil and and natural gas and and other things stored in the Earth. For those of you who didn't know, oil is basically rotten plant garbage more or less yeah (laughs) um that's it so basically all of that produced oxygen is a product of the reaction Mm -hmm. so we can we can estimate that based on the amount of oxygen in our atmosphere there's a corresponding amount of oil Mm -hmm. uh or other hydrocarbon reserves in the earth what chris is saying ladies and gentlemen is that there's probably a shitload of oil underneath the surface of the planet in some form but the other consequence of that is that if we use all of that, if we burn it all, mm-hmm. we will have no oxygen left on our planet. Good point. Yeah. That's a counter. Mm. We need oxygen for some, certain things. For certain things. So that's a that's a very long-term perspective. Should we just like plant more trees then? Is that going to help? No. Uh, it, I, I don't think that net will uh, <laughs> change the balance. Trees themselves decompose these are much longer term processes so we probably shouldn't really burn affect. all the hydrocarbons probably not okay so let, let me add one more piece of perspective for you okay. our our known reserves of all non-renewable sources mm-hmm. are at at some some value um you know uh, on the order of a, a few hundred years of, of human consumption mm-hmm. um using current known estimates not mm-hmm. the long-term estimates the amount of sunlight that hits the Earth's surface in in any year is about 10,000 times higher than all of those known reserves put together. Mm-hmm. The, remember oh. those plants we talked about? This, this is how we get all these plants in the first place. Is yeah. that they photosynthetically harness this energy and grow, right? Right. And that's why they could even exist to rot and give us hydrocarbons in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the power of the sun is massively like in orders of magnitude greater yeah. than the hydrocarbons that we've harnessed thus far. Yeah. Four, four orders of magnitude greater than everything we know about, not mm-hmm. even what we've used. Yeah. So we should probably figure out how to do something with that. Yeah. It's a, it's a vast resource and it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty, mm-hmm. um, well, pretty sustainable. Yeah. You know, as long as the sun is sunlight. Yeah. You know. It'll keep on shining. If It's like if a it's, meatloaf song. Like as yeah. long as the sun is burning, as long as the earth is turning, you better believe it, that we're going to be able to harness it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, because we'll do anything for electricity. Yeah, absolutely. Unlike meatloaf, who would do anything for love. Yeah. But we won't do that. Or will we? That's the question. Nick, mm. do you have any questions thus far of Chris's analysis and or where we're at, why Chris's job exists? 
do you want to shame him in any way or tell him that his job ought not to exist thus far? No. <laughs> I think I think it's great that you have a job. I also think on a serious note that it's great that our society is looking for this. I mean, I don't want to get too optimistic, but yeah. there is a side. I think a lot of the like Mr. Robot anonymous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bernie feel the burn mm-hmm. rhetoric can be like, you know, people are just so set in their ways. There's never, it's never going to change. But then we mm-hmm. also have like a state funded like research programs looking into these things. So on the level of you having a job, I think it's a, a very good thing. Go team. My, yeah. My question would be kind of on line with what Ryan was saying is in, in on a very layman level, I've been hearing about like solar energy, wind energy, so on and so forth for a long time. And it's always put off. Yeah, it's like in the future when everything looks like an Apple store. In the future, there was a war. Yeah, (laughs) then we'll have like solar energy. I was just wondering, like, as someone who's completely ignorant on this, and I hope this is not offensive, like, how's the progress going? Like, is it, yeah. Where are we at, man? Mm -hmm. How are you doing? Yeah, that's a good good question. Um, Maybe I'll I'll take a step back and frame this a little bit. Uh, The first solar cell was invented at this wonderful place called Bell Laboratories back before, uh, you know. As an Alexander Graham Bell. Yeah. Back before the Pacific Bell monopoly was dissolved, uh, we had this wonderful industrial research lab that led to, I don't know, small inventions, things like the transistor and the solar cell, you know, two years later. And was this um, like a public-private partnership, or was this a company? Or this this was operating um, wholly within Pacific Bell, mm-hmm. uh, which is a private uh, utility. Yeah, exactly. And, but presumably with some sort of mm-hmm. public because the government allows as well, yeah, private utilities to be public utilities, monopolies. Yeah, right, basically. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah. So all all of these brilliant scientists that are now working in academia are, mm-hmm. um, you know migrants out of the dissolved Pacific Bell, uh, all the people that I look up to. Sorry? What decade are we talking about? We're talking about the 60s. Uh, Well, in terms of invention of these these Mm -hmm. key things, I think Bell Laboratories was dissolved in the late 80s or early 90s, -hmm. somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of of like body hair and like, you know, musk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to set the scene here. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Weed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Closely linked with solar. Um, <laughs> okay. And and so that, that had efficiency in the range of a few percent. By the end of the What 60s, do you mean by a few percent? A few percent. So in terms of energy content of sunlight hitting the solar panel, a few percent, like 8% of that would mm-hmm. be usable electrical power. Mm-hmm. And the rest would either be... How does that compare to like plants? Like uh, what do plants get out of the sun? Yeah, if you, if you average over all plants... Um, all different types of plants, different mm-hmm. plants have different efficiencies, but average it's about 1%. Wow. So, so it's better than plants. Yeah. Already better than plants. The very first one. Suck it. Plants. Well, plants <laughs> suck. Plants are the worst. Plants oh. do a lot of other good things for us. Though. Yeah. But in, but most of all, I feel like they're the worst in a lot of ways. Cause that's, they're the reason we're in this mess. Also true. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, and so from there, you know, kind of a a solar research scene developed. And what were uh, those first solar panels or cells made out of? They were made out of silicon. Okay. Um, like the dominant technology today, mm-hmm. I, I think about 92% of panels today are silicon in mm-hmm. some crystalline form. So mm-hmm. either monocrystalline, uh, which means there, there are multiple crystals that grow together, mm-hmm. um, and they're kind of more shiny, speckled-looking panels. If okay. you see them out in in the world today, a lot of times they're those are attached to phone poles, um, call boxes on the sides of freeways, mm-hmm. sometimes on people's roofs. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also have monocrystalline, which will look mm-hmm. pretty uniform about, across like, watches, the entire like surface. Watches. Uh, so a lot of those solar-powered watches or calculators, which were mm-hmm. early mm-hmm. applications of solar, were thin-film solar technologies. So mm-hmm. either that was later. 
either cadmium telluride mm-hmm. um, or copper indium gallium diselenide, which when no, were those nobody listening to this podcast. Oh, oh. 60s, 70s, 80s? Uh, I, I think 70s. Okay. 70s or 80s era. Yeah. Okay. And so, like, was everybody pretty happy? Like, hey, we're getting 8%. Like this is great. So I think I think that was good, but electricity is a commodity. Mm-hmm. There's no luxury electricity mm-hmm. in the same sense that I can buy a luxury vehicle mm-hmm. and Tesla can make sense in spite of the high cost of, mm-hmm. of the batteries that it has to yeah. uh, bundle into its car to work. Like how and much so, better can water be? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. How much better? You yeah. know, it's like it's a we all need it. Yeah. Like, as long as it's not poisonous, I can put it in my Brita. Exactly. Yeah. So, from a cost perspective, that was several orders of magnitude mm-hmm. away from being cost effective. So, people, the attitude, and this is kind of like pro-oil people's attitude, is like, that's cute. Yeah. I'm like, cool project. Yeah. But you're not going to power a city with it. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. been the, the the resistance, I guess. Or the... Not even resistance, but the kind of dismissal, right? Right. Has been like, okay. Yeah. And, and there was, there was some body of research and, um, you know, there was, uh, an oil shortage and, and gasoline lines and Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the white house. Okay. And, and, uh, then that crisis Mm -hmm. dissolved. Mm -hmm, Because politically we respond to crises more than we do long-term, like right. just as humans. Like right. if there's a crisis, we go, well, we have to fix this. Yeah. And so when OPEC was strangulating the world supply of oil, there's gas lines, gas prices are up. We have stagflation economically. Mm-hmm. People don't like Jimmy Carter. We feel like he's weak. I mean, I wasn't alive, so we is a relative. You know, so all this stuff is happening and people go, we've got to have another way. Right. We've got to have geopolitically, we've got to have another option besides these Middle Eastern countries run by these dictators who hate us. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so what did we do? What did, as, a, as a government, what did we do at that point in the seventies? Uh, I mean, there was some relatively small amount of funding. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really basic research to try to figure out how could we both improve the efficiency of these panels and really the, the, Efficiency achieved in silicon peaked by the 90s and was stagnant for um, over a decade, a decade and a half or mm-hmm. so. Uh, and only but you're the skipping last... the 80s. What happened in the yeah, 80s? Yeah, well, in the 80s, we got more oil and mm-hmm. everything totally, uh, you know, died no more out. Crisis, crisis averted. Yep, exactly. Crisis averted. And uh, when crises crises are averted, we go back to doing whatever it was we were doing. More SUVs. Woo. Yep. Although SUVs are an invention in the 90s, I'm being anachronistic, but basically people were like, well, that was weird. Yeah. (laughs) Something else we did in the the late 70s was the Department of Energy had a a public-private partnership and Mm -hmm. invested in a little technology now known as hydraulic fracturing that, you know, think about 40 years later, 30 years later. Has yielded some results. Yeah. Led to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a, a production revolution, mm-hmm. uh, a technology revolution. Which ironically has accomplished geopolitically what we originally wanted solar to accomplish, like in terms of not being as reliant on Middle Eastern oil. Right. But now it's because of the shale that's in North Dakota, Texas, and other places. Because mm-hmm. of those, um, basically... Could you describe the hydraulic fracturing shale thing? I know that's not your expertise, but you probably know more about it than most people do. When someone says fracking, mm-hmm. or when someone says hydraulic fracturing, or when people talk about shale oil, what are they talking about? And so, why is it important? Yeah, so you, you can you can drill a well um, and then basically inject water, hydraulic, uh, mm-hmm. with some that's some slurry. It's got sand particulate yeah. or yeah. other particulate in it that opens pores in the rocket, it expands out mm-hmm. laterally, opens and holds open these pores so that we can extract mm-hmm. a, a much larger amount of natural gas. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a bit more destructive technique. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's, it's fairly benign. Uh, that's it's happening at like a thousand feet underneath the surface or 2000 feet underneath the surface, right? I, like I think way, more, way, way, yeah, way, yeah, like way pretty, under the water deep. table. Yeah. Way example. under the water table. Um, and so what, what's happened economically, I can chime in and say, uh, it's created about 2 million jobs mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, it has 
made us a lot less dependent upon oil, mm-hmm. especially from the Middle East and from Absolutely. Russia. Um, and that has given us uh, more wiggle room geopolitically. Um, we don't go to the Middle East because we love their culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like The Middle East has, has been... Um, in the ancient world, the Middle East was important because of trade routes, yep. but we have great planes and boats and things now, so we don't really have to worry about that. And in the modern world, the Middle East has been valuable geopolitically because of oil. Right. And so if hydraulic fracturing has led in less to a less dependence upon oil and less demand for oil globally, mm-hmm. first of all, that drops the price of oil. And correspondingly with the slowdown of the explosive growth in China and India, Mm-hmm. their demand for oil has dropped. That's why the price of oil has dropped precipitously. Right. Um, we don't feel it as much in California, but if you were in Texas right now, you'd be paying a dollar seventy or something for gas, like something pretty low, yeah. like pretty darn low, right? Yeah. When compared to any other country or any other place. And part mm-hmm. of that is this hydraulic fracturing. So that, the reason this matters is that was the result of basic research produced out of a private public partnership that the government was funding. Exactly. Um, similar to some of the research that has, that has produced some of the gains in solar technology. Right. right? So yeah. taking it back to solar technology since the seventies, when that was kind of happening and then the eighties, when we were like, yay, oil again, we're in charge. Everyone's afraid of Ronald Reagan. Um, when that happened and we kind of stopped funding this stuff, mm-hmm. what did that do to the, to the technology? It, it basically stagnated and it, it did a couple of things. Uh, silicon had been around since, since its nexus and mm-hmm. it, it continued to exist. Mm-hmm. Does um, it come from that one, one valley in Northern California? It, where it silicon... absolutely does not. Silicon is, <laughs> oh. is pretty prevalent everywhere. It's, it's, I think the so most, that's of... not an ancient name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's Latin roots. there. What's the difference but... between sand and silicon? So sand is largely composed of silicon dioxide. Okay. Um, and so it's, it's just oxygenated silicon and sand or, um, you know, other SiO2 quartz that we would mine out of the earth, um, gets refined in. Mm-hmm. Do we in, melt it? Sorry. Do we melt it? Yeah, we do. We so do. we melt down sand and we get the silicon. Yeah, we can, right? we can get the oxygen out of it. There, there are a variety of processing tech techniques. Mm-hmm. Uh, most What's commonly, the difference between the, sand, silicon, and glass? So, sand, like, and when I say glass, I mean like windows, like the glass we use for windows or yeah. glasses. There, there are a lot like of, looking glass. <laughs> there are a lot of impurities in in sand. Um, there are a lot of impurities in certain glasses, mm-hmm. uh, and those can impart different properties. Can mm-hmm. give it a tint. Can mm-hmm. um, impart you know various other properties mm-hmm. that make it absorb more or less. So glass silicon dioxide has what we call a, a large band gap. And that is a difference in, in energy states where there are electrons and not electrons in the material. The consequence of that is that glass doesn't absorb very much light mm-hmm. and it doesn't generate an electrical current. Because we don't want when, it to. When it does. Yeah. For exactly. most purposes, we want glass to allow light to pass through it. Right. It's, it's, and electronically it's an insulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's perfect. So thanks, Glass. Yep, exactly. We appreciate you. So Unlike we- plants, doing a great <laughs> job. Yep, exactly. So so far in this episode, the hierarchy is Glass at the top, plants way down at the bottom. Yeah, G- and then Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Jimmy Carter below <laughs> plants because Jimmy Carter absorbs less than one percent of the sun's energy for sure. He's for an, sure, he's an old person. For sure, They're always cold. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah. always cold. Yeah. Anyways, go on. He'd absorb more. Um, <laughs> yeah. So silicon. You get rid of the oxygen and it goes from insulating to what we call semiconducting. Okay. And so it's, it's in this intermediate range between metals that conduct electricity. Yeah. And, so they're not fully conducting. Right. Um, and so why don't I, we want them to fully conduct? Well, if you fully conduct, then you can't really generate a, a voltage, which oh, is what we there's use no to ex- extract electricity. Yeah. So we want exactly. a tiny gap. We want a, a relatively small gap. Yeah, and windows have big, this big gap. Yeah, like glass windows mm-hmm. have this big gap, and then conductors don't really have. Yeah, yeah. there's no gap. There's no gap. Semiconductors and... have like the perfect thigh gap. <laughs> the perfect thigh gap. Yeah, yeah. That's, exactly. that's why Versace uses them in yeah. runway modeling. Yeah. Okay. So okay. This, this gap is is linked to what what wavelengths or what colors of light the semiconductor can absorb. Okay. Um. 
I don't even know how we got here anymore. Well, because we were just talking about where silicon goes. Oh, yeah. That's and how right. we get yeah, silicon. Right. And, and, Ryan, and I, Ryan and I know nothing about it, so it's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So you're having to explain everything. Yeah. 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 Which, is, which is great. Treat us like we're four. Okay. <laughs> so this right. is sand. This is glass. This is a semiconductor. Can you say that with me? Semiconductor. Would you like Semi-tractor. some Semi-tractor. <laughs> I would love some goldfish. Um, so after so, this, like silicon, you, you're talking about like in the eighties, we're basically, we had gotten as far with silicon as we were going to get. Not, not quite, but, um, by the nineties, certainly. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess what I wanted to say was the result of this research glut in the eighties was that all of these competing materials that we had been researching mm-hmm. prior to, um, prior to this glut, basically died off. They didn't have the longevity or the level of development mm-hmm. to sustain themselves through mm-hmm. um, through this valley of death, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, we had to choose how to spend limited resources mm-hmm. because the resources were not flowing as they had before. Right. And if you had something that was more of a nascent technology, it was a more infant, mm-hmm. then it hadn't been able to show as much promise because it hadn't been able to show as much promise. All that funding went to something that was more established and had, had more of a proven track record, a proof of concept, which Mm -hmm. was silicon. So all these, all these other materials, basically they were like, sorry, sorry guys, you're not going to get the money. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and two other, two other materials managed to survive that time that I already mentioned, cadmium, uh, cadmium telluride and, uh, SIGs, copper, indium, gallium, diselenide, and those are, you know, they, they make up most of the 8% of solar today that is not silicon. So silicon's still 92% of solar, yeah. and then these two other metals or kinds of semiconductors, um, these are the other 8%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so really, since, uh, since the 90s, a, a lot of research has been put into this area, and I think we're we're really at a point where solar photovoltaics is a developed technology. Okay. It's no longer it's a here. developing technology, at mm-hmm. least from the perspective of silicon. It's a commoditized product. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, between 2010 and today, the amount of solar installed has probably doubled two or three times. Mm-hmm. So in the world or in the country or both? Uh, in the it, both, yeah. Aren't the Chinese making this more efficiently cost-wise than anywhere? Yeah, so... Chinese are killing it, right? One, one thing that happened was um, in 2004, the amount of silicon used by solar panel manufacturers started to approach the amount of silicon that was used by uh, integrated circuit manufacturers, the Intels and Uh-oh. AMDs of the world. And what this led to was a polysilicon shortage. Yep. And the price for basically the only time in the history of solar development, it started to increase slightly over time. Um, and there was a big boom of investment in startup technologies that were either based on ideas to reduce the amount of silicon that needed to be used, mm-hmm. or were using alternative materials. Mm-hmm. This um, is what happens in marketplaces when you get competing, competing sectors using the same raw materials, is that there's now an incentive for people to try to figure out whether there's an alternative. Yep. So if you run out of strawberry jelly, there's an incentive to say, well, can we turn these raspberries in, into preserves or jelly? Or, you know, yeah. um, or if it gets too expensive. So this is what was happening. People are like, well, now there's a shortage or mm-hmm. high demand and an increasing price for the silicon stuff. Is there anything else we could be using? Yeah. And, and so there was a boom of research and development and attempts at commercialization mm-hmm. for various other technologies. Were these private, private, public, public? All of the above. All of the above. Yeah. A, a lot of it was publicly funded research at the mm-hmm. university level, but definitely um, private companies. Mm-hmm. Every, How did George W. Bush from, allow this? Isn't he an oil man? Sure. But I mean, all, all of the oil companies were actually in solar at this time. You know, Arco had, was, I think, the first major oil producer to bring in a, a solar division. BP, Shell, mm-hmm. basically all of the major Wait, players. Wait, are you saying oil companies also are investing in solar technology? Ab- absolutely. But yeah. the, don't they hate solar technology? I think fundamentally they're energy companies. And What? Yeah, I know. Crazy Man, idea. I thought it broke down into like evil oil companies and then good green technology companies. But that's not like the dividing line? No, I think... I think 
you know, like any good uh, <laughs> capitalist, you know, they want to make money and they it, want to make money a hundred years from now. Yeah. Just we, like they want to make money yeah, today. Exactly. Exactly. That's weird. You're a weird dude. Just telling me facts like that. Yeah. Nick, any thoughts on that? Um, I think it's untrue <laughs> because it doesn't fit into my narrative. So Chris is using I, a category yeah. error. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I mean, yeah. So BP, no. which killed the Gulf, there are no more fish in the Gulf, as we know. Not even one. <laughs> Thank you. They invest in solar technology? Yeah, they did. They did a lot, both in terms of internal development mm -hmm. as well as, um, you know, do they venture, venture partnerships. Did they stop? No, it, it, for almost all of these companies, if not all, um, they divested completely of solar. Okay. Um, so they're the, evil again. Uh, yeah. Okay. We'll, good. we'll say that. Good. Okay. Okay. Suck it, oil companies. Yeah. Okay. This, okay. I believe this now. <laughs> Okay. This is yeah. true again. Okay, this is true now. <laughs> All right. So, what's happened since since uh, or what happened to make people divest? Like, yeah, you know, what's the deal with that? Why did they stop? Yeah, uh, a lot of things. I mean, people largely were looking at these alternate technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, alternative technologies to silicon at the time, and then more polysilicon refineries were built. The mm -hmm. silicon price dropped yeah, back down. Mm -hmm. so uh, we were like, never mind. Yeah. And so it reemerged as the dominant technology. It, it sustained a, a cost advantage, and a lot of these endeavors <sighs> that was a close were one, unsustainable. Yeah, and and went belly up. Solyndra. And yeah, tell me about Solyndra. So this Solyndra is like hmm. a buzzword. It's a company that that was like invested in by private and public sources of mm -hmm. funds and it's used as republic by republicans as sort of like a like an example of when the government picks a loser yeah so to speak so what was cylinder like what was that so cylinder was one of these companies that have emerged in the you know 2005 to 2007 time mm -hmm. frame um with a a non-traditional pv design um pv photovoltaic okay. technology solar panel design okay. uh and they were basically making a bet that by changing the form factor of their panel, mm -hmm. they could get around the silicon supply constraint. Mm -hmm. um, and when they're by using assumption, less silicon? by using less silicon, well, actually, I'm not. I'm not actually sure if they okay. were using silicon or okay. an alternative material. Okay. But um, so either by using no silicon yeah. or by using less, right? One or the other. Yeah, but they were operating on the assumption that silicon would not come back down in price and reclaim the solar market. Mm -hmm. And that wrong. assumption turned out to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So that so whatever was, investments in that company were, were lost, whether it was public, whether yeah. it was private, but yeah. there also seemed to be some, um, less than earnest, uh, reportings when they applied for this department of energy loan guarantee program that led to this, this whole fiasco. So they may not have been fully that. forthcoming about the actual, financials going yeah. on. Yeah. I believe the federal investigation concluded that there was fraud. I think there was fault probably on both sides mm -hmm. and the, um, the people on the department of energy side reviewing the documentation mm -hmm. submitted overlooked some, some things or failed to catch some things that would have been indicators of this. Thanks Obama. Yep. Wow. But this was during the Bush administration, right? But anyways, thanks. Yeah, Obama. I guess so. Yeah. Thanks someone. Um, so did anything good come out of this whole situation? Well, so I think people like to single this out as, uh, a failure of crony capitalism. Yeah. Right? This is the government picking winners and losers, but they're investing in a portfolio. Mm -hmm. The department of energy loan guarantee program, like any, you know, like any venture capitalist, even mm -hmm. you don't have a 100% yeah. expectation of success. You don't and pick it, all winners. Yeah. Unless and if, you're me. If you look, well, which is yeah. why I'm independently wealthy, which and is why, why you should go into Vegas. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the portfolio overall, even including the the five or six hundred million dollar loss that mm -hmm. Cylinder was, the total losses are something like seven hundred and fifty or eight hundred million. Which I have lying around. So the so the interest money that they've earned back. back from this loan program, even including that major loss, mm -hmm. exceeds what they've lost in net total. So suck it banks. 
Yep. So the interest, so basically what that means is this loan program has net made money for the federal government. Now there's, there's some question as to whether the government ought to be making returns on taxpayer dollars or whether they ought to be using them for something else. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that they need to be operating as a capitalistic private entity. Maybe, maybe. Why not? not? <laughs> well, I, if give me one good reason, because I can't think of one. I mean, right I think now. I think if you think about opportunity cost, somebody else may be able to use that money to do mm -hmm. something more efficiently. Uh, well, and if we're than, concerned than at all can. about government um, corruption, mm -hmm. if the yeah. government is a source of funding for private companies, then it gives more incentive for there to be special interest lobbyists, people that will bribe or even legally influence through campaign contributions, politicians that could um, potentially make business good for them. So it's a it's a reinforcement of a corrupt political process, basically, right? Yeah, that yeah that that is a, a potential negative outcome. Um, so what's the difference that, between the government helping with like the first stages of research, like through Caltech or the government, like investing in companies through loan guarantees? What's what to you, what's the difference between those two things? So I think the goal is actually the same in, in both cases, mm -hmm. um, to some extent. So truly basic research, I think the goal is to understand new things, to really, um, intrinsically develop ourselves as, as a human species mm -hmm. and our understanding of the world mm -hmm. and through understanding the world, uh, develop new technologies, develop new technologies, mm -hmm. apply it, um, or even just, uh, create, you know, enable ourselves to reach a higher level of, of Zen or yeah, uh, <laughs> play more video games longer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Then there's applied research, yeah. which is specifically technology focused. And that's mm -hmm. the sphere that I find myself in. Mm -hmm. And that's typically to develop a proof of concept or to bridge an early stage development gap. So to get from the point where I can make this thing in a lab and it will work once to, I think I can make this thing in a manner that will be cost effective and I can do it you know, 95% of the time successfully where I can then take that idea to a venture capitalist or to, um, someone else that will invest in and help me scale the technology further. Now the loan guarantee program addresses, I think the same thing in that this applied research is bridging an early stage Valley of death where there's basically no existing funding from companies to to work because they don't risk right yeah. early stage long term outlook technologies um, when their bottom line and their responsibility is to their investors or their board or or um, their private owners in in it's interesting because in term. other in other industries like pharmaceuticals for example you have massive amounts of money mm -hmm. being privately invested by Pfizer or Merck or whatever into their own research and development. Why wouldn't it be the same case with, with private energy companies that they would be willing to do their own in-house? Is it because, is it because um, other energy sources are so much more efficient at that time? You know, is it, you know, you know what I'm asking? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. So there are a couple angles. I think one, there is a lot of internal investment in research and development. It's just not necessarily as fundamental or as far from where their current expertise lies. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of gradually, it's almost like the roots of a plant seeking. Mm -hmm. They're like gradually building out from their expertise rather than hopping over to a completely different, you know, sector. Yeah. And typically it's, even that is on a shorter term time scale. I mean, Pharmaceuticals, I think, maybe has one of the longer timescales in terms of drug development, yeah. and they, you know, they try to minimize that as much as possible so they can profit during the mm -hmm. patent uh, mm -hmm. patent viability period and mm -hmm. uh, before you know generics can come in and decrease their margins. But what do we have? Twenty? Do we twenty-year yeah. patents on medication? In other countries, so. have like seven years or something like that. That's why the Trans-Pacific Partnership yeah. negotiated. That's one of the major sticking points. Is how will U.S. companies, especially pharmaceutical companies, who want to sell their medicine to China and other countries, but they don't—they want to have their patents because 
China has already allowed their own companies to violate our patents, right. <laughs> like, like on our companies. Yeah. So that's one of those sticking points is like how long, once you, you sink millions or even billions of dollars into research, mm-hmm. how long ought you be able to solely profit off of that technology? Right. You know, right. that's a, that's an ethical question. It's a philosophical question. It's an economic question mm-hmm. um, in terms of incentives. And so that's a, that's a whole nother can of worms. But so you're saying in the energy sphere of things, it works a little Dif- a little differently or is it basically uh, a little I, I think it's it's both the same and different in that mm-hmm. the I think the outlook tends to be a little bit shorter term mm-hmm. um, certainly there there are longer term endeavors like I already mentioned mm-hmm. the the shale revolution was yeah. definitely a, a long-term research mm-hmm. and development endeavor that came to fruition um, but oil companies are not typically I think investing in solar in part because it's competing with their own mm-hmm. business to some extent. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think strictly about electricity generation, petroleum is only 1% of electricity generation. So mm-hmm. there's not really any competition there. Natural gas is about a third. Uh, but back to the, the point I, I wanted to make is that there's this, there's this early stage R and D Valley of death. And then where the DOE loan guarantee program comes in, is it's it's bridging a subsequent valley of death. Mm-hmm. So there's Before, two major valleys of death so far. Yeah, um, and there may even be another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that new technologies that are not scaled have a difficult time competing with massively scaled incumbents mm-hmm. because they're more efficient because of efficiencies of scale, right? right. Like right. like it, there's already millions of cars, millions of gas stations, dozens and dozens of refineries. They've been able to get, we've been able to get more efficient with our miles per gallon and automobiles. Mm-hmm. We've been able to get more efficient with, you know, hybrid technologies. And so we've been working on internal combustion and things of that nature based on fossil fuels for over a hundred years now. Mm-hmm. So that's an enormous advantage right. over something that was invented by some hippies in California 45 years ago. Mm-hmm. And if I can borrow more capital now, then I can scale up my new technology much faster than I would be able to. So why are VCs stepping in at a higher rate on this? I think it's By beyond VCs, the scope. Capitalists. Yeah, I think it's beyond the scope of what venture capitalists have available to, to cover. Yeah. So why doesn't like Bill Gates or Tim Cook step in and just throw some, why doesn't Elon Musk do more? I mean, he has solar city. Yeah. I, I mean, I think they, they are, okay. they are operating in this space. They are, backing some of those costs mm-hmm. and you know how much would it cost to make solar energy at least competitive with you know with fossil fuels so depending on who you talk to mm-hmm. um i think you'll find that solar energy already is competitive with fossil fuels okay. in some certain regions rock and roll um, a few places without incentives and a lot of places with current, you know, federal investment tax credit incentives. And that's basically solar city's business model is with the federal, mm-hmm. uh, let's say we didn't have credit. the federal tax incentive structure. Though. We're talking about actual competition. Like, yeah. Let's say in a free market, like how, how far are we from, from it being a competitive technology, like in Arizona and California. So on an unsubsidized basis, I think the cost of solar at a utility scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to put a, a huge, you know, hundred or several hundred megawatt plant out in the middle of the desert mm-hmm. and use the electrical grid mm-hmm. to pump Let's electricity in the into Los Angeles. Yeah, it it's about a dollar and forty cents per watt unsubsidized, mm-hmm. and so another you know forty cents or so off of that will make it highly competitive. What's the what per watt cost of, um, of like a, like a, a coal or natural gas burning power plant or nuclear. So it, that's not actually a great comparison. So let me do a translation for you. Um, that per watt cost translates to about 10 cents per kilowatt hour of electricity consumed. So mm-hmm. a kilowatt hour is, um, that's a, like a unit of, of energy. Yeah. It's, it's the equivalent of joules or something. Okay. Um, and so that's what you'll get charged in on your utility mm-hmm. bill. Utilities typically sell electricity in California at something like 12 cents per kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. And they generate electricity around the six cents per kilowatt hour mark. Okay. So, 
Um, and we're yeah, talking that, about right now kilowatt hours. Uh, we can get solar at about one point two or, or sorry, twelve cents at twelve cents per kilowatt hour from so solar. Any it ranges by by location. So there are power purchase agreements in Texas that have been signed at five cents per kilowatt hour. That's cheap. That that includes incentives, but oh. um, what if that's it didn't? Not bad. If it didn't, I think it's it's around eight to you know, 15 cents, so depending doable. on where you are. Yeah, yeah, definitely doable. It makes sense for a lot of residential uh, consumers where mm-hmm. you're comparing against the rate you pay to the utility rather than the cost of generation, mm-hmm. although those installations tend to be a little bit more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, if I lived in these areas in Texas and I had a huge house and I wanted to power it and I wanted it to be cheaper than what I'm paying the power company, mm-hmm. it might make sense for me right now to put a bunch of solar panels on my house. Absolutely. Awesome. And it definitely does in, you know, in Southern California, in most of the Southwestern United States mm-hmm. with the available uh, incentives. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's solar city's business model. The, the incentive exceeds the amount needed to mm-hmm. maintain cost parity. They have the money to front the upfront cost of solar. Mm-hmm. And um, so why do we need profit then? from that? What are you what are you giving us if we if we're already there? So that is kind of a I think it's a little bit short sighted in that the electricity grid as it's currently developed has some capacity limitations. Okay. Um solar is fundamentally an intermittent resource. It's mm-hmm. affected by things like cloud Clouds. cover. <laughs> it's affected by things like, I don't know, night. Yeah. So yeah. Unless mm-hmm. you're the old spice guy and you make a second sun, <laughs> that is uh, an intrinsic limitation. Um, and what this results in is a thing that's known as the capacity factor. Okay. So the amount of time relative to the rated power output of the panel that uh, you actually produce at that level, or the amount of power you produce relative to if you produced at its rated level 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So the capacity factor for solar is typically something in the range of 25% okay. for a, a fossil fuel plant on the electrical grid, a coal plant or a natural gas plant, it's 70 to 90%. So yeah, so it's more efficiently using the right. the infrastructure. The grid. Yeah. And so what that has led to is um, basically no problems to date. Yeah. Uh, because the the electrical grid can accommodate a large degree of this intermittent power uh, without having to adjust a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we approach uh, 10% of all electricity generated in California coming from solar in 2015, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's a good starts, chunk, by the way. Yeah, that starts to become a, a more formidable component of the overall grid and somewhere, you know, depending on the specifics of the grid, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15%, you start running into intermittency issues mm-hmm. um, where you can't necessarily consume all of the solar power being provided onto the grid mm-hmm. at the times it's being produced. So there's a, a large movement in storage currently for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, using batteries or uh, pumps and high, uh, you know, water reservoirs yep. to store energy over time. Um, Hydropower is a clean, renewable resource, but we just don't have a whole lot of natural reservoirs to store it. Yeah. Uh, Washington State has basically the lowest electricity rates in the entire country because they have a ton of natural natural uh, water reservoirs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you can dams. just use them to store potential energy. Yeah, exactly. Um, hmm. And so there... Can I be... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Sorry. Can I be like a grandma for a second? Yeah. Okay. So if you were like explaining all this to my grandparents, I think the first thing they would say is like, well, like a grandma in Chicago, it's like, it's overcast half the year here. Yeah. How does, how does, how would you, how would you make a city like Chicago, uh, something that could work on renewable energy? Or are you one of the people that see it like a collage, like, you know, obviously windy city, so there'd be a lot of wind energy. You have the great lakes, you have all these other things. Or do you think solar could be like a widespread, almost sole solution, I guess? And this doesn't have anything to talk about. It's something I was thinking while we were listening. Yeah, I I think that it certainly is the best positioned 
resource in terms of abundance. Mm -hmm. You know, the amount of, of sunlight hitting earth is in my mind, the only sole resource that could renewably foreseeably replace all of our electricity consumption needs. That said, mm -hmm. I don't think it's the most appropriate resource to do that everywhere. And almost certainly there will be a, a collage. Um, yeah. You know, wind somewhere like Chicago makes a lot of sense. Um, but solar can make sense a lot of places. And one of the main drivers behind the research that I do is that if you can increase the efficiency of the panel, then you can provide more power um, at net averaged over time and make a cost competitive argument uh, in places that even have, you know, a high degree of cloud cover um, yeah. places like yeah. Chicago, places like New York, which strangely is one of the highest solar penetration states in the country. Yeah. So you're saying like with the increase of ways to store it and efficiency on the panel side, it could become a solution almost everywhere, really. Once we get the technology up to the spec. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I, I think it probably won't do that. Um, and the mm -hmm. reason, the reason it won't is uh, storage is on a, a much delayed learning curve relative to solar. So it'll take a while to get there. Another reason I think it won't do that is that, um, at least in the United States, there is a ton of grid infrastructure that we've already invested in. Um, and so not utilizing that is a, is a huge wasted co cost, a large wasted capital investment. And so there will be a, a more gradual transition. Mm -hmm. Um, and then really the, the biggest reason in my mind is that electricity is only something like a third or 40% of all of the energy that's consumed in the United States. And uh, so let me ask you a, a question you might not know the answer to. Um, I could imagine that part of Tesla's plan is to have these car charging stations around the country mm -hmm. and to eventually have those be solar powered. Yeah. Is that, with that, it has. I, I don't know if that's what Elon Musk has said, but that just seems to make a lot of sense. It's the, yeah. There's certainly a synergy between Solar City and Tesla. There, um, I think there's a lot of potential uh, synergy if you can if you can leverage the batteries that already exist in the cars mm -hmm. as the storage solution. Mm -hmm. So, like, ver like, like what I could imagine is I've done this drive a couple of times. I ten mm -hmm. from. Jacksonville, Florida to Los Angeles, California. Most of that drive has a lot of sun. Yeah, that's right. Most of the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you're talking about a Tesla with a 250 mile range, which is what they're trying to, to get to rather soon, right? Mm -hmm. The Model 3 and all that. Then you're talking about if you can have every every couple hundred of, hundred miles, these 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 car charging stations, which they're already building right now as we speak, mm -hmm. and have most of them be at least partially solar powered. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking about being able to travel across a continent without the aid of fossil fuels. Yeah. Or with very little use of fossil fuels. That's that's an that's an incredible achievement. Mm-hmm. There I, I yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And the, the solar powered is. plane just completed its uh, its journey, right? Yeah. Although far, pretty far from what we expect from jet fuel powered planes. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'll just tell you about something you might not know about. And that's this thing called a thermophotovoltaic. So these have been around for a long time too, but basically heat, it radiates just like sunlight at mm -hmm. uh, infrared wavelengths where we can't see. Mm -hmm. And if you have a really nice mirror on your solar cell, um, and you tune it to convert optimally um, low energy light, some of these infrared wavelengths, and then you just burn fuel in, in an engine and let it radiate its heat to the mm -hmm. solar cell and reflect back everything that can't be converted by the cell because it's too low energy. The heat gets recycled to the heat source, continues to heat it up, and can come back to the cell as usable energy. There are people talking about doubling the efficiency of 
conventional internal combustion engines wow. using what's essentially a photovoltaic hmm. technology. So it's truly hybrid technology. Yeah. Because you're using internal combustion, you're using photovoltaic technology, you're combining those to just th to throw um, efficiency just through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So there are some promising developments taking place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So where do you see this going? Um, we only have a few minutes left in the podcast. Where do you see energy going? If you had to make a prediction, if you had to make a bet, what, what does it look like when we're old men talking about how things used to be? I see it going a lot of places. Um, I think you, you may agree with this, but I, I do think that to a large extent, natural gas will be a bridge between our carbonaceous past and T-Boom Pickens for the win and our uh, renewable future. I think that's really important. You know, we had this Paris climate agreement where many countries came together trying to limit um, global temperature rise to below two degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's silly. I think what's really going to happen is guys like you are going to make it, technologies make sense yeah. economically efficiency wise. China and India aren't going to stop burning fossil fuels until it makes sense for them to stop to, to switch to another technology. So right. we can do whatever we want. And, you know, President Obama can go to cool meetings with mm -hmm. other dudes and Angela Merkel and hang out. Um, and, and, that, and that's great. Um, but I don't think it's going to change until I think your work is actually more meaningful in making real change than a bunch of world leaders saying we ought to do this because I, ultimately people will do it when it makes more sense. Yeah, right? I agree. And I, I think that China and India may be positioned even better than the U.S. to adapt quickly. Because um, they don't have the old grid, right? Right, exactly. Much in the same way that the cell phone in infrastructure in a lot of East Asia mm -hmm. very, you know, instantaneously surpassed that because the they didn't States. have the old they didn't yeah. have the old one that's just yeah. why i've heard um sonograms in africa are better than a lot of them here because they just got the newer you know they mm -hmm. just got like the better technology yeah once they were able to get the technology they got the newer kind so if you know they didn't have to deal with like oh well we already sunk cost into you know they didn't have to deal with that quandary yeah yeah and then i think the other thing that's going to happen in our lifetimes is that someone is going to put an economic price on carbon. Mm -hmm. I, I think that is the kind of the elephant in the room that has well, philosophically what, what we, if um, there's a philosophical economic book called for the common good mm -hmm. it was written by a economist and a, an ethicist. And they got together and talked about um, the problem of what we call externalities. Mm -hmm. So externalities are things that aren't included in the price of something. So, and usually someone's breaking the law or something, but uh, I'll give you an example. So let's say there's a small town and there's a factory in that town and they are making leather and they, they're selling boots for $50 a pair, leather boots. And you discover that for the last 50 years, they've been dumping poisonous chemicals in the water. Mm -hmm. And cancer rates are higher in that town. I mean, this has happened. You know, cancer rates are higher, health costs, cost of living, all that stuff is higher. Those are externalities. They're things that aren't priced into the cost of the boots. Mm -hmm. Had people known what would happen with the pollution from the factory, the boots would have cost $200 rather than $50. Right. Right. So what you're talking about is eventually people will figure out a way to price the real cost of fossil fuels into the use of fossil fuels yeah, some kind of a right. carbon tax, some kind of a program or just companies will go, Hey, we're sick of being charged with cleaning up the Gulf. So we're going to charge you more money for this. Mm -hmm. that, that's what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that in our lifetime that will certainly get bundled in mm -hmm. and um, bring mm -hmm. renewable generation sources even closer into parity you know, if not sub parity with, mm -hmm. with, uh, these other more traditional generation sources. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, because of the way utilities work, like we should have been paying more for water the last five years in California. Right. Like if it were a real free market right. and not something that's a maintained monopoly mm -hmm. by the government, um, and utilities, like we would have been paying way more for water, but because it's necessary for life, it was kept at an artificially low level, even mm -hmm. though it was very scarce. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things that worsened the drought is we continue to use water at a certain rate because of the price. Yep. Even though water is relatively inelastic, right? You kind of 
need it. Mm-hmm. But you would find ways to use less of it if it costs 10 times more. Right. And I, I think that's a really important point that water is necessary for human life. Mm-hmm. Much like electricity and energy use in general mm-hmm. is necessary. It's a necessary good for mm-hmm. economic production. If you like podcasts. If, if, you, <laughs> if you like anything um, <laughs> other than anarchy and destruction. <laughs> energy is it's a basic good. And... So finding ways to, without increasing the cost of what people pay currently, incorporating and facilitating incorporation of more renewables into the mix, mm-hmm. I think is the only way to move forward. If you, mm-hmm. if you do it in, a, in such a way that increases the, the net cost, you end up stifling economic production. Um, and it can be a, a pretty quick spiral downward. Well, I promised my wife that her next car will be a Tesla. So I certainly hope that all of this comes to fruition. Yeah. Hmm. She makes all the money. So it doesn't mean anything. I'm going to wait to buy my car when I, when we're on Mars, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, I don't want to move it there. Mm-hmm. Like I feel well, like Venus would be a lot better for solar. Right. It doesn't uh, have like clouds everywhere. It's, Isn't there yeah, like it's a, got a pretty nasty atmosphere. Yeah. Poison. Let's forget atmosphere. it. Let's go to Mars instead. Okay. Yeah. Um, Nick, got any takeaways for us any thoughts from from your perspective of what we should be thinking about i mean chris has given us a massive amount of perspective and information here um oh one last thing before nick you answer that chris in all seriousness what is your research hoping to contribute in terms of the technology is it silicon is it not silicon like what are you know you you told us kind of where the industry is why is your research potentially impactful yeah, so I think my research is potentially impactful for two reasons, and in the present, one more than the other. Um, when we first started, I think there's a, a potential to make a big impact through drastic increase in the efficiency of solar production, as long as there's a scalable pathway to to manufacture. As long as you're not using like platinum or cost. diamonds to yeah. like make. <laughs> yeah, we don't use silicon. We do use more expensive materials, but mm-hmm. we also use relatively inexpensive optics to focus the sunlight down onto those materials and use less of them. So um, that is a, a a potential big impact. But I think the more important impact of the work would be to motivate other people to think differently and outside the box mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Uh, photovoltaic power generation. Not just the one thing that's been kind of working. Right, right. Um, for, you know, just greater long-term opportunities. Solar can have much greater penetration if, uh, you know, in places like Chicago and uh, basically anywhere that's not Washington, uh, Washington state, Mm -hmm. if it has higher efficiency. And, Mm -hmm. and so for energy security, not just for the United States, but for any country that has sunlight as a resource, which is almost all of them, um, that is a, a geopolitical balancer, mm-hmm. and so hopefully... hopefully Eat, Iran. Is. We don't need you anymore. <laughs> All right, Nick, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I think it's refreshing to hear this from a non-soapbox perspective, you know? Yeah, I mean, just obviously... talking about things that exist. Yeah, just, just being able to... I think it's a reminder of, like, if maybe political discussions could have this air to them about, like... Okay, so I don't really, when you say silicon, I'm thinking of, like, an HBO show mm-hmm. and breasts and, mm-hmm. like, other things. Mm-hmm. And so can you just tell me what that is? And so we actually know what we're talking about. Yeah. It's been, it's almost been, I know we've brushed on some economic theory and some political concerns mm-hmm. and market forces, but it's it's almost surprising how not political this sounds it sounds very much like this is a new area mm-hmm. that needs development and needs young minds and needs yeah i feel like um, this podcast yeah. could have had a lot more moral outrage yeah well in in most of the conversation about these things at least on the popular level is always wrapped in that it, it has mm-hmm. pictures of like a whale dying on the shore mm-hmm. are on the opposite side. I don't know, like the phrase liberal elitism or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think I really appreciate you, Chris, for just being able to walk us 
through this and <laughs> being able to just see it from a, a in a weird way, a working man's point of view, as opposed to like a yeah. Of, yeah, yeah, and for me, it's uh, as an ethicist, we have to do several steps in our our ethics. The first one is description, so we do description, analysis, evaluation, and then some kind of suggestion of application or praxis. Right, that's our process. I see a lot of people in my circles, which tend to be more social justice oriented and arguing arguing about what we ought to be doing. Um, I, I'm at a left of center. Um, graduate school, um, a lot of people interested in the intersection of spirituality, religion, and justice, and law, and ethics, and things of that nature. But what I see is there's all, often a weakness in the first step. There's often a weakness in the description step. Like people will be outraged about something, and I'll be like, "Well, tell me about what your understanding of that is." And sometimes it's a it's a it's a fairly um, a fairly um, inadequate understanding of the problem on the ground that people see a problem and they go right into the sort of outrage of like, we need to change this right now. And they don't stop to really gain a robust understanding of what's going on. And I think that's a huge weakness because you end up saying, well, this needs to stop right now. And no one has like, I'll give you one example. Like um, we need to stop companies using labor to make t-shirts in Bangladesh. So like my first question to people is compared to what? Like, what were these people that are... There's no doubt that there are awful working conditions in Bangladesh. I just want to know what these people were doing before, Mm -hmm. right? Because if their life was worse than than that before than now, maybe we shouldn't stop. I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. We should still try to say, let's let's buy clothes from companies that we agree with their practices more, use our dollars and do all that stuff. But if there's an assumption that these people's lives have been made worse by these companies and that's not true that disintegrates the entire ethical argument right because if, if, if the premise is not true mm-hmm. uh, and so mm-hmm. i think the value of what you've helped us with today is in the energy and renewable energy and solar energy and in, in this in this sector you've given us a little bit more of that first step of description so that we can as an ethicist i can go well okay what now makes sense to say we ought to do this given that I have a little bit of a broader understanding of what's going on with, with alternative and solar energy. So thanks for providing that for us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <sighs> yeah. Um, hey, Nick. Yee. What are we talking about next week? Oh, my. Do you want to... Oh, man. Do you want to talk to Mike McCann again, or do you want to just make him shut up forever? I mean, he was texting me about Foucault primary sources yesterday. Whoa, power so dynamics. He's probably into it. Um, he's He and I have been wanting to talk about superhero movies. Okay. Are you up for that? What if we do superhero movies slash Beyonce's new album? Let's do that. So okay. let's, call it, let's call it superheroes because Beyonce's a superhero. Okay, perfect. And we'll just kind of include it in that heading, and we'll try to get Mike McCann on. Um, but for now, um, this is episode 27 of The Mean. Uh, this has been Ryan. And Nick. And Chris. And two of us will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Chris.